Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. Our guest is Victor Luckerson. He is a journalist and author based in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who works to bring neglected black history to light. He was nominated for a National Magazine Award for his reporting in Time Magazine on the 1923 Rosewood Massacre. His new book is titled Built from the Fire, the epic story of Tulsa's Greenwood District, America's Black Wall Street. Victor's book is a multi-generational saga of a family and community in Tulsa's Greenwood District, known as Black Wall Street, that in one century has survived the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, has survived urban renewal, and has survived gentrification. I'm joined by 18 of my Harvard classmates. Uh, Hamp Howell, class of 63 at Harvard, grew up in uh, New York and Boston, living in Nashville for the last uh, 30 years along with Brazil and Puerto Rico. Uh, I'm a clinical psychologist who uh, is wondering if, if I can retire faster than Elizabeth. <laughs> okay, Ron, Ronnie, Ron. Yeah, class of 63, Newton, Massachusetts, been in TV and video all my life, still occasionally get freelance work and also do climate volunteering. Okay, Bill. Bill Collins, Harvard 63, now in Aiken, South Carolina, moved here about 30 years ago to work at the Savannah River site on nuclear waste cleanup. I had some professional background in that from the Navy for 20 years. Now I'm retired from all that stuff, living here with my wife. Okay, and uh, Jerry. Good morning, uh, Jerry Secundi, Pasadena, California, class of 63. Spent a couple of years in the Peace Corps in Cusco, Peru. Uh, this morning, I'm wondering about Arkansas, which now says you can't get credit for studying uh, Black studies. Uh, and then again, I remember 100 years ago, we had the Scopes Monkey Trial. You couldn't teach evolution. So maybe we are making progress. I'm not sure. <laughs> maybe. All right. Uh, Mason Morford, class of 62-3, uh, Freeport, Maine, did land conservation, now doing climate change. Uh, I've got my younger son and several of his friends visiting, and they're all fanatic cooks. And uh, so I just sit around and wait for them to cook something up, and I'm scarfing down the calories. <laughs> see more feed me. Yes. Okay. Jeff. Uh, Jeff Fox, uh, originally from Chicago, now living in Spain. Uh, I, I've written another, you, you brought the subject up. I think I've got, I'm not quite sure, eight, ten books out uh, on a whole variety of things. Uh, the first one's in sociology. More recently, I've, now I'm writing fiction. Uh, Peter Grilly, how are you? Fine. Hi. Um, I'm class of 63 originally, but graduated two years late in 65, uh, having taken a two-year leave of absence to go and study um, in Japan at Tokyo University. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in Japan, and most of my life has been uh, in cultural exchange projects between Japan and this country. Good to be here. Good. Okay, Doug. 
Uh, hi, I'm Doug Shapiro. I live in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I had a, a multifaceted career and I ended up uh, uh, developing uh, new uh, pain medications that are relatively unaddictive. Oh, that's good. Good. Uh, also, class of 63, grew up in New England, but now live just south of uh, San Francisco and San Mateo. Um, I, my wife and I have a fundraising consulting firm, and unfortunately, I'm going to have to leave in about 15 minutes or 10 minutes uh, to go try to sell a project. Okay, gotcha. David Allen. David Allen in Concord, Massachusetts, though uh, born and raised across the river from where Doug is, in, on a farm in Indiana, a checkered life, person <laughs> business, and in university. But now very happily, uh, over decades, uh, an activist for democracy in one way or another. Okay, and uh, George. George Jones, class of 63, currently living in Ann Arbor, Michigan. But I was born and raised in Muskogee. Ah, okay. <laughs> Anne, Anne Groves. Uh, hi, Anne Groves, uh, class of 63. I am... Currently in uh, D.C., uh, heading back to California uh, for a few months in September. And um, I just wanted to share an experience that Liz and I had. Uh, maybe she'll talk about it also. We visited the Sankofa uh, bookstore and cafe in uh, D.C. and uh, heard a wonderful exhibit and uh, um, performance and, excuse me, book discussion. Um, about this book, which I highly recommend, called Illmatic Consequences, The Clapback to Opponents of Critical Race Theory, um, edited by Walter Greeson and Daniel, uh, Danny and Jerry. So okay. for those of you in D.C., it's a, it's a really um, interesting find for us. Okay, great. Liz. Hi, um, I'm Liz Morey. I'm also class of 63. It's really wonderful to see so many people, class of 63, hey, class of 63. Um, I also live in, uh, I live in Maryland, just outside of DC. However, I identify as a Californian because that's where I grew up and uh, also spent 29 years in Fresno, California. So I think of California as my home. And Anne and I had a wonderful time at Sankofa and I'll be sending uh, some information about that to Kent. Uh, okay. So I'm very happy to be here. Great, great. David Othmer. I grew up in Central and South America and uh, actually worked in South America after graduating from the business school, which I attended after Harvard College, where I graduated in 1963. Currently live in Philadelphia. <clears throat> Spent most of my adult life in public broadcasting at WNET in New York and WHYY here in Philadelphia. Okay, uh, Kathy. Kathy Nelson, um, live just outside DC, grew up in Connecticut. I'm a housing economist who worked at HUD for policy development for 25 years, saying there were affordability problems for the poorest people, not for the people that get most of the HUD subsidies, especially not for the ones who get the mortgage interest deduction. Um, just read a, what I found a fascinating book called 
the three mothers, and of course I don't remember the author offhand, but it's about the mothers of Martin Luther King, um, Malcolm X, and uh, Jimmy Baldwin. And I came across it because our church is trying to be more welcoming to people of all races and I guess we're for the diversity, inclusion, etc. And um, read a great book called, discussed over 10 weeks, a book called Necessary Risks, What Privileged People Should Be Doing to Make the Country more inclusive, welcoming. Um, that's by someone named Terry Ott, O-T-T. And, and, and she recommended all sorts of other books to read, but in, in spending a good part of two weeks looking through all, glancing through the ones I could find in our my two public libraries, I came across a reference to this Three Mothers and got it out and thought it was better than any of the others. So I just passed it on in case none of you have heard of it. Okay, Dorothy. Hi, everybody. Good to be here and looking at you. Uh, same class, uh, grew up in Belmont, Massachusetts, went straight from Harvard to Harlem and joined the Harlem Action Group in 1963-64, Civil Rights Movement. Uh, stayed in Harlem for the next 25 years, living and working in pub public education and in community-based uh, parent-controlled education, and then created uh, something called the Youth Action Program, which grew into Youth Build, which I then spread around the world, uh, spread around the country, really, first, um, managing bipartisan support to get a couple billion dollars into a couple hundred low-income communities in America so that young people who'd left high school without a diploma in low-income communities could come back to school, do something, get their high school diploma, build affordable housing in their neighborhoods for homeless and low-income people, and prepare for college or the construction industry or whatever the hell they wanted and get leadership training. And that I did that for 40 years. And now I'm 81 and I am trying to figure out how to best use myself for the remaining years of my life to do much more than navigate inside our sick, oppressive, extractive economy and somehow uh, change the larger system to benefit humanity. And I haven't figured it out yet. So I hope you're going to tell me today. Okay. All right. John, John, are you with us? John Woodford. Yeah. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, we hear yes. you. Oh, in the car? oh, I'm in a car. I'm in the car. We're Chicago bound actually to go visit with two other members of our class, Al Strauss and uh, Kent Hernander, but we're in a torrential downpour uh, between Ann Arbor, Michigan, where we live, and Chicago. So I've been editing and writing for my uh, career. Okay, thank you. And finally, Victor, welcome. We finally, we finally got you here. Yeah, yeah, happy to be here. I'm Victor. I'm the author of Built from the Fire. I'm from uh, Montgomery, Alabama. So shout out to all the Southerners. I know we had Kentucky and Louisiana, South Carolina in the in the call. And um, I moved to Tulsa. I was living in Atlanta, Georgia before this. Actually, I moved to Tulsa to work on this book in uh, 2019. Uh, it just came out in May, and I'm very excited to talk to y'all about it. You know, a few years ago, when I was living in Atlanta, I was actually having a lunch with a friend. And we talked about the movie uh, 12 Years a Slave, which had just come out a few years before that. 
And my friend hadn't seen it. He was actually really tired of sort of seeing black folks being depicted, being brutalized across media, basically. And so I asked my friend, oh, have you ever heard of Black Wall Street? That's a story about us being successful. My friend had never heard of it. So we were two at the time, 27-year-old uh, young black men. And my friend had never heard of this story about success, black success that Greenwood represented. And so that's really what kind of motivated me to sort of go on this journey. And so um, I actually wrote an article about Greenwood in 2008. 18 for a website called The Ringer, where I used to work. And so I ended up sort of expanding that article into a book project. I sold it to Random House in 2019. And then I quit my job, uh, packed up my life. I made a, a black country music playlist and just drove west to Tulsa, uh, where I've been living since 2019, working on this book. And in terms of the structure of the story, you know, I mentioned earlier um, in the call that um, Isabel Wilkerson was a huge inspiration for me, The Warmth of Other Suns, very formative book for me understanding how to structure academically rigorous store academically rigorous work that still reads like a story and can kind of captivate, you know, anybody who picks it up in a bookstore. And so I knew based on reading her work that I really needed to focus on um, people and families. And so I was able to identify some families um, in Greenwood who had survived the race massacre, stayed in the neighborhood and persisted till today. And so if you go to Greenwood right now, actually, um, on Greenwood Avenue, the heart of the business district, there's an old auto garage that's been repurposed into a newspaper office. And so that's the Oklahoma Eagle, which is the black newspaper that represents Greenwood. And the family owns it, the Goodwins. They've actually been in Greenwood since 1914. Um, they came to Greenwood uh, from Water Valley, Mississippi, seeking to escape uh, Jim Crow and white supremacy. And at the time, Greenwood was known as the Eden of the West. It was being marketed as this Black utopia to Black folks in the Deep South. So this family comes here to uh, comes here to Tulsa in 1914. They open a grocery store and an undertaking business on Greenwood Avenue. They're really kind of living that Black Wall Street mythology that's become so popularized last few years. Um, but, you know, they, like so many others, had their home, businesses, um, church, all burned to the ground in 1921 by a ravenous white mob. And the reason the good ones kind of really resonated for me is the fact that after that happened, their family stayed and rebuilt and helped their neighbors rebuild. And then they're buying this black newspaper, they'll call me Eagle in the 1930s, and they've owned it ever since. So Jim Goodwin, um, he's 83. So he was like 19, class of 1960. Um, he was at Notre Dame, actually. I think I think he got into Harvard and Notre Dame and picked Notre Dame. I have to go back and jump, but... Um, he's a Notre Dame grad and um, he's actually, the, he's a current owner of the newspaper and an attorney here in Tulsa. And so he's the one who kind of really unspooled their family story for me over the generations. And he's a very prominent figure in my book, um, along with, um, his niece, Regina is a state legislator here in Oklahoma, who's um, represents Greenwood, one of only two black women in the house of representatives. Um, she's fighting for reparations, um, police reform, um, several other urgent issues. And so the, the structure of the book kind of follows this this family and others, but really the Goodwin family, sort of across every single generation, all the ups and downs they've survived, both in terms of their own, their own internal dynamics, but also in terms of representing this community, uh, which has um, faced a lot of challenges over time, but also it was a really powerful story, I think, about um, Black resilience and solidarity. So that's kind of the structure of the book overall. Did, were you able to interview uh, people who had lived through the, the 21 riots? There were there were some you were actually able to speak to some of them, right? That's so, correct. Yeah, there are three living survivors right now, and the oldest woman, um, Viola Fletcher, hundred nine now, and I was able to interview her 
in 2021, um, or just shortly before the 100-year anniversary of the race massacre. And so, um, you know, she was able to tell me that, you know, she told me, for example, that um, she still has nightmares about the race massacre. Um, she actually doesn't like sleeping in um, her bed because being in the bed reminds her of the night she was in the bed in Tulsa when her home and livelihood were destroyed. And so it was kind of interesting meeting her and the others because, you know, they're more than 100 years old. So I remember the first time I met her and the other two living survivors, we were at this conference room at a casino and I got an opportunity to meet them in a very small group. And when I approached them, I kind of like assumed that they were going to be feeble, basically. But they were very spry. They were with it. She knew exactly what was going on. And I, I look kind of silly trying to treat her like she didn't know what was happening. Um, so they're they very like lively and spry. They've been traveling around a lot. Um, well, guys, about, that, gives us, that gives us something to strive for. All of oh, us. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they're all um, they were 100 and 100, 105, 106 when I met all three of them. And they were like completely oh. adamant and with it. At the time, actually, the first time I met her. Regina Goodwin, the legislator, asked her what she wanted. What did what does she want? You know, and you know, she mentioned obviously that she wants justice for her people and for people to really understand that history. But she also said she really wants to go to Africa. And so actually, um, later that year, she got to go. So her and her brother, um, got to go to Ghana. Um, some uh, nonprofits or through charitable donations, they were actually getting money to go travel to Ghana. So they went actually um, in twenty twenty one. And so, um, you know, there's a legal case going on right now for reparations for those survivors. Uh, it was just dismissed uh, by a Tulsa County judge last month. I wrote an article in the New York Times about that, actually. Um, so now the case is going to be he heard by the Oklahoma Supreme Court. Um, it's definitely a challenging legal case they have. But on the more positive side, there has been a real outpouring of charitable giving for those three survivors. So even if, even if they don't win their case, they are living their final years and some relative comfort thanks to people um, wanting to donate and give to um, their cause. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Doug. Um, yeah, I, I'm wondering uh, how do people who currently live in Tulsa, both blacks and whites, uh, think of themselves and each other? Uh, I mean, do, do white people feel guilty now or not? Uh, do black people uh uh, you know, view uh, their neighbors with suspicion or, I mean, what's the situation now? Yeah, I mean, it varies a lot by person. Um, so I mentioned at the start of this, I'm from Montgomery, Alabama, which is another city with very complex racial history. And um, I was really struck by the differences between Montgomery and Tulsa. In um, Montgomery, the history with Dr. King and Rosa Parks, it all kind of feels like America's history. It's very distant. I thought it was very distant when I lived, grew, grew up there. But in Tulsa, it's very intimate and raw. And I think part of that's because nothing's been resolved. You know, the story of the race massacre was in many ways buried for decades. Um, all efforts at restitution have been denied by the courts, by the legislature, um, by various mayors. And so because of that, I think the rawness comes out a lot more. So there will be like city council meetings here where you'll just get a lot of really passionate um, black folks from North Tulsa who are upset about efforts to seize Greenwood land or denials of what they perceive as justice. Um, and so that that rawness comes out a lot, I would say, um, kind of on a more interpersonal level. You know, I think it just, again, there's like a lot of variance. So there's a lot of memorialization in Tulsa. So, you know, there's a new museum here commemorating the race massacre, um, lots of plaques, statues, et cetera. But there has been a very aggressive 
um, effort to oppose um, any kind of legal cases that would actually give cash payments or any kind of other restitution to the survivors or descendants. So Tulsa definitely has kind of like a, I think it's kind of a hypocrisy they have going on where they're willing to acknowledge what's going on for the public. So if you come to Greenwood, you'll kind of think that things are happening in a positive way. When you talk to a lot of the folks who have been, who either survived the massacre or have been fighting for justice for a long time, they'll tell you that um, not nearly enough has been done to this point. I mean, how much has been lost in terms of history, in terms of uh, records and archives and that sort of thing? Yeah, so I mean, that was a challenge for me. You know, my book is, um, intim- so the book is more than 600 pages, which is very intimidating, but it's got more than 100 pages of footnotes. That's why I always tell people, like, a lot of it's just footnotes, so don't be scared. Um, <laughs> but the uh, challenge for me was that so many documents have been go- have been destroyed, uh, whether through neglect or through purposeful action, you know? Um, so just as an example, um, after the race massacre, there is this sort of legend or old history that there are all these photographs of uh, mass graves. And so the story goes that a police officer here in the 1970s was in his, at the station and a guy who was around like an old time, who was there in the 1920s, brought out this box of photographs. And then all these images of black bodies um, in a mass grave um, but in what is now a homeless encampment in Tulsa. However, um, fast forward the 1990s and somebody's trying to find the photographs. Now they've all come up, come up missing. And actually in the last couple of years, the police department was again asked to like, do a thorough search for these photographs and they're, they're, they're nowhere to be found. Um, but there are officers today, retired officers who say, yeah, I actually saw these pictures, you know, 40 or 40 years ago. And so there's a lot, there's a lot of threads like that in Tulsa where we have this oral history about something that happened and somebody says they saw some evidence of it, but it's been destroyed or neglected. Um, it kind of makes you think about the, um, arrest warrant for the woman who accused Emmett Till um, that was just kind of like turned up in the police station in Mississippi, like in the basement a few a lot last year. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a, it was a challenge sort of getting that documentation. But I was also impressed by how much there was out there. For example, the white newspapers in Tulsa covered the massacre very thoroughly for about a year. So you actually have a lot of information about the immediate aftermath. So I was able to explain that in a lot of detail in my book. Um, but a lot of the value of what we know now comes from the oral history of not only the current living survivors, but people who were passed on in recent decades and um, were able to tell their story. So that part of it's really important, too. But Peter. Yeah, I, I, I must confess, I haven't read your book yet, but it's top of my list. It really sounds like a fascinating book. But I've read a number of reviews, excellent reviews, and several of them talk about your your cousin. Stanley, um, whom you brought on as a as a research assistant, I guess. Could you tell us how that all came about, and and what this whole experience of delving into into history um, did for young Stanley? I think he was only thirteen years old when you when you first brought him into the project. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking that, Peter. I love talking about Stanley. So. Um, I started this project four years ago and maybe a few months after I sold the book, I approached my, at the time, 13 year old cousin about being my research assistant. Um, so Stanley's very bright. He lives in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, always been a reader since he was five years old, volunteered at the library, just like total bookworm. And, um, you know, I approached him and I told him about this event called Toast Race Massacre. He'd never heard of it. 
Um, I had to read my, I had him read my proposal, the official proposal I sent to Random House to kind of get his bearings on what the topic was and what the material would be like. You know, I asked his parents if they were comfortable with him learning about um, these traumatic events. And his mom, my auntie, told me that, yeah, like he's going to have to learn this at some point. So why not do it through you? Because, you know, you can help him guide him through this, uh, this history. And so Stanley, uh, over the course of about a year and a half, um, he read several academic books for me. Um, he wasn't doing like kids work. You know, he read an academic text about the Red Summer of 1919. He read books about black soldiers in World War One and World War II and took notes. Um, he looked at race massacre lawsuits for me and helped me kind of organize those. And what's kind of interesting about all that is, first of all, he actually started his first day on the job for me was like May 30th, 2020. It was about a day or two after George Floyd was murdered. And that's when Stanley started diving into this history for me. And she actually was in his notes bringing up these parallels he saw between what he was learning about in his U.S. history and the protests of that summer, which is really striking. And, um, you know, so Stanley was doing his job in Birmingham. I was in Tulsa. Mostly I would just like text him or email him what to do. I was so busy. We didn't really talk about it, what he was doing really. But I got to interview him um, this spring. He's now 17 years old. Uh, he chose Princeton over Harvard. Sorry to say to this crowd. Um, <laughs> he just start, he's starting at Princeton right now. But um, Stanley, it was interesting sort of seeing how much he had matured, um, you know, not being a senior versus a freshman, but also like how much learning about the race massacre through me had really changed his perspective on our country in some ways. So, and for Stanley, Stanley at least, it wasn't necessarily that, uh, I think there's some, this whole conservative backlash in some ways seems to be animated by this fear that young people are going to become um, quote unquote anti-patriotic or hate America or these kind of things. At least in Stanley's case, I think our learning about the history, first of all, made him more cognizant of the challenges our country's face and what, what, how we should be more aware as citizens about what we've been through in the past. But also, he was very inspired by Greenwood's story. He was very inspired by the fact that these folks had faced so many obstacles and were still fighting for justice in this community. So at least for, at least for Stanley, learning about all this stuff gave him, a, I think, a richer perspective on American history and the American story, which was really cool to, cool to hear. And so, yeah, um, me and Stanley were in The New Yorker, actually, um, featured in, in print in the Talk of the Town. And uh, it was the June 30th issue. So if anybody wants to see it, it's on the June 30th issue of The New Yorker. Me and, and there's, a, there's an illustration of me actually holding my book. Um, so that's kind of an apex mountain moment for a writer. So uh, it, was really, it was really cool working with Stanley on the project. Okay. Especially in the context of today when books are being thrown out of schools and, and banned and, and all of that. It must have been an extraordinary experience for a young person who's living through all of that. Yeah, definitely. And I'm glad we got to kind of document and chronicle and get his thoughts down about it now. That's going to, I think, be valuable for him as he gets older, too, for sure. Mm -hmm. David Allen. So when I first became aware of the Tulsa massacre, I thought this is the most unspeakable thing, unimaginable. Uh, how can we have this in our history? God's sake. Uh, for me, the comparison is with fascist Germany and the, the uh -huh. devastation created by that. That was on a national scale. We're talking about a city scale, but it really was the same thing on a city scale. I'm curious. Um, you fortunately had these uh, three survivors in their hundreds. Uh, who 
were so impacted, so hurt, and so forth. Curious, on the other side, of course, those currently resident in the city didn't do it. They're, the folks who came before them did. But I'm curious, uh, is it possible to get into the mindset of folks in the city, whether or not they have a similar view of uh, this disastrous past? I have German friends, Japanese friends talk about uh, uh, their view of their histories. And almost to a person, of course, the folks I'm going to know are going to come out this way, but almost to a person, uh, they're condemnatory. You know, they they can't imagine that the place they live did something like this. Uh, and yet uh, there have been apparently, uh, learning certainly today, uh, complete resistance to things like reparations. Curious, when you get in the mind, uh, inside the mindset of the, the white folks in Oklahoma City, and it's not going to be universal, of course, it's going to be great variety and so forth, but is there any similar sort of picture we can assemble of what's going on there compared with those who were subject to this? Sorry for going on. Yeah, you know, I would say that um, sort of on the historic side, if you're trying to sort of think about what was in the mob's mind at the time, um, there were a few, there was a lot, at the, in 1921, when the race massacre occurred, there was a very deep paranoia about a Negro uprising in Tulsa. And so I think there's some level of maybe like assume, not, I don't know if it goes quite the right word, but I think white people in Tulsa at the time knew they had been treating black people very, very poorly. And that might sort of boomerang back on them at some point. And mm -hmm. so there was really this like really intense paranoia about black people arming themselves and invading white Tulsa and all this kind of stuff at the time. And um, I actually, if you read the National Guard documents, uh, all the National Guard members, so the National Guard came into Tulsa on the night of the race massacre, ostensibly to quell qu the violence, but also they actually helped sort of deputize members of this mob and sort of, you know, um, quell black people is really what they were trying to do. But they talk about in this in the National Guard reports about how they sort of had to make a decision about whether they were going to focus on protecting Greenwood. because They, they could have basically like protected the neighborhood itself and sort of kept the white mob out or they could protect white property and sort of stop this imagined Negro uprising. And so there was basically all the all the officials spent all their energy trying to trying to stop black people from invading white people's homes, which wasn't going to happen instead of protecting Greenwood. So historically, that was a big animating force, I would say, at the time. Um, turning to what's going on today, um, you know, the mayor of Tulsa, he's kind of in that, I think, in that um, hypocritical mode in some ways, because he, for example, has endorsed this new museum they have in Greenwood. He's at the ribbon cutting. He says it's so bad that, you know, murders occur in the neighborhood. But he's also said that, you know, the city of Tulsa is opposing this reparations lawsuit. And he said that the citizens today are not responsible and should not have to pay for what happened 100 years ago. That's basically his argument. Um, which I don't really think is valid because it, this is really a conversation about institutions, right? It's the city of Tulsa, this institution that existed 100 years ago and persists today and did this wrong against its own citizens. And so that's sort of the, to me, that's the framework we should be, we should be talking about this, not about individual people and their tax dollars, quote unquote. 
Um, and so I think a lot of times the argument against it today comes down to that sort of individualizing, trying to say that, well, you know, I didn't do anything. I'm a total white Tulsa citizen, so like I should not be held responsible for this. When in fact, the people we're talking about are not the citizens. They did not do anything, but the police department did, the city of Tulsa did, the Chamber of Commerce did. And so that's sort of the argument that, you know, the lawsuit's making and that I'm making my book to some extent. Um, but you will find in Tulsa a lot of people who have a lot of resistance to the idea of reparations, uh, for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, George. So first of all, a comment, David, Oklahoma is one of the reddest states in the country. So <laughs> you shouldn't expect a lot from the white people in Oklahoma. But I have a question. Fine. I have a question, not directly related to your book, but as you live in Tulsa, you might know something about this. Is there any effort? at all underway are possible to revisit the killing of Terrence Crutcher. Yeah, so actually uh, that's a major um, element of my book. Um, so Terrence Crutcher was a North Tulsa resident, uh, an unarmed black man who was shot by a white police officer named Betty Shelby in 2016. And so his um, killing was national news story. Um, Barack Obama commented on it. It was sort of in that lineage of killings of Michael Brown, Eric Garner, and the early Black Lives Matter movement. And uh, his he had a twin sister named Tiffany Crutcher. And so Tiffany's become a very, very prominent police reform activist in, here in Tulsa. Um, she led the protest after George Floyd was murdered here. Um, and she, I profile her heavily. She's like a major figure in the modern part of my book, actually. And so there is an ongoing um, civil suit. Um, so I should say Betty Shelby was found not guilty um in a criminal trial in 2017 and so she'd been charged with manslaughter and she's found not guilty so that's that part of it's done there's a civil suit that's ongoing that um tiffany and the family are pursuing and more broadly they pursued a lot of police reform efforts such as having an independent oversight board for the police department and so a lot of those efforts got a lot of traction in 2020 right after george Floyd was murdered but i think happened around the country but there's been a big retrenchment actually um our mayor who is, um, his whole vibe is kind of like, he's like a Republican, he's like a moderate. So he's like a Republican, but he says he can work across the aisle. And he's like, kind of like too busy for politics. It's kind of his brand. Um, but um, since 2020, amidst this kind of conservative backlash, he's kind of tacked to the right more. And so he's like abandoned the idea of an independent oversight for the police here. And so, um, yeah, it's just a challenging time for that. I talked to Tiffany about the challenges. And so right now they're trying to focus more on her organization, she has a nonprofit here that's uh, advocating for reform. And so they're trying to focus more on grassroots efforts to help build up people power, basically, to change who's in charge, basically, instead of trying to convince this mayor who's probably not going to support their efforts to change his mind. That's kind of where we are right now with the police reform efforts uh, here in Tulsa. So is Betty Shelby specifically a, de a defendant in the civil suit? No, I think it's the, it's the police department, I believe. Yeah. Um. I should just say one more thing on Betty Shelby. She actually got a job right after that. Um, so she was, she was uh, I think she resigned from the Tulsa Police Department, but then Tulsa County Sheriff's Office gave her a job training other officers on what to do if they shoot an unarmed person. So that's her job right now. Mm -hmm. Doug? Yeah, can you describe what the attitude is both by blacks and whites in Tulsa about our gun laws 
Uh, I can well imagine if I were Black and living in Tulsa, especially if my family had uh, lived through the massacre uh, era and so forth and so on, that I would be happy that I can go out and buy a whole bunch of guns and, and arm myself for some future massacre. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I would be well aware that all the white folks around can arm themselves too. And it seems to me that the whole situation could be, you know, very dangerous and kind of tenuous in terms of uh, what the future uh, holds in store for people there. Yeah, no, that's, thanks for the question. That's definitely been an interesting dynamic I've observed here. So Oklahoma has very permissive gun laws. They've become more permissive over the last four or five years. Um, I can't say the details of um, how they've changed, but I just know that the Republican legislature has been pushing for more and more permissive laws. So on that side, that's definitely happening here. Um, on the black side, there's also been, um, there's like a, re there was a recent, um, I guess like gun club organized um, in Greenwood. So that was, that was after 2020 actually, where black people started to start saying we want to be able to um, arm ourselves for self-defense. And also um, Greenwood has become kind of a um, focal point for a lot of um, like modern Black Panther organizations or militant Black organizations. So there was a huge march in Greenwood on the 100th anniversary of, I want to say probably 200 armed Black men. They like marched through Greenwood um, with their rifles, um, kind of recreating in their head, in their minds, the um, effort by armed black men to defend Dick Rowland, the black guy who was accused of rape during the race massacre. Um, so these, there's been a lot of, um, like the Greenwood story has a um, militant aspect to it. Sometimes it kind of gets glossed over sometimes because I think sometimes white people are uncomfortable with that idea. Um, but certainly that thing, that is a part of the story that black people are very aware of, that black folks arm themselves to defend one of their own. And so that part of the story has a lot of... Um, Residents, people today, and so you'll see people coming here sometimes, to kind of like recreate or channel that militancy and that um, active self-defense. Mm -hmm. George, yeah, let, let me just comment on that. Is I don't obviously don't live in Tulsa, wasn't wasn't born and raised in Tulsa, but but I was was as I said, born and raised in Muskogee, and I go back there a fair amount of time. And needless to say, most of my friends, essentially all of my friends in Muskogee, are black, and they all own guns. The ministers own guns. All of the black people in Muskogee own guns. Uh, Liz. Hi. Um, I was wondering, as you were doing your research, what you found that was surprising or unexpected for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. So I kind of have two answers to this, and I'll start with the happier one. So um, part of what my book does is try to go beyond the race massacre and explain what happened afterwards in Greenwood. So I go a lot into the Greenwood economy later. And I learned about how um, gambling was huge in Greenwood. Um, the numbers game in particular, um, or the policy wheel, was a very, very popular game, um, kind of the modern lottery. But it was illegal and, you know, very much demonized by the police and the government. And so in my research, I found out that um, the Goodwin family, the family who owned the newspaper, how they got into the newspaper business was because um, Ed Goodwin was actually the numbers kingpin of Tulsa. He was the kingpin of the whole game in Tulsa and used that money to buy the newspaper. So I found this out during my research and I thought I was talking to my mom a lot about my research. And so I was telling my mom about how this guy who I thought was super upstanding actually had been part of this gambling enterprise and all this kind of stuff. 
And then my mom was like, oh, yeah, your granddad did the same thing. You didn't know that? <laughs> and so I kind of discovered that my grandfather in rural Alabama had also been involved in bootlegging and bribing the police and a lot of stuff I didn't know. Um, so that was a good lesson for me about, um, in many ways, the, the routes that Black folks had to the middle class back then. You know, there were no direct routes. And so they took whatever routes they could find. Um, so that was an interesting discovery of my own about my own family through the research. Um, something that was a little tougher to stomach was regarding the race massacre itself. So I mentioned earlier how um, documentation is hard to come by. However, the Red Cross was actually really helpful after the race massacre, um, providing resources for Greenwood. And so they have a very in-depth report about what happened and they have a lot of statistics. So they have like 1,256 houses destroyed. They have the number of meals they issued out, the number of tents they helped build in the community. And I was in the library one day here in Tulsa um, looking through this report. And they also had information about casualties, the number of people killed, injured, et cetera. And in this report, it said that there were actually eight stillborn babies during the race massacre. And so when I found that out, I was just sitting in the library by myself. That was a really challenging um, information to sit with. And it really kind of clarified in my mind how Greenland lost its past when all of it was destroyed, but it also lost its future when so many people's lives were snatched from them. Their, their, their futures were disrupted, you know what I mean? And so that was probably the most harrowing fact that I found um, that was surprising to me and that um, I talk about in the book, too. Thanks. Uh, uh, Victor, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm hoping you could talk a little bit more just about how the world looks to you today. You know, uh, partly in terms of the uh, environmental catastrophe that's com that's probably coming, mm. pretty certainly coming, and just just how how you feel about those of us that have preceded you and uh, uh, how that uh, uh, affects how you think about your uh, life. Um, all right, that's a big question. Um, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. You couldn't yeah. answer that one, Camp. <laughs> uh, I mean, the honest answer is I think a lot of people my age have a mm, kind of like a background nihilism, you know? I mean, when you see all this information about where the world's going, ecologically, environmentally, you think about the future of your life, and it's just very, like, it's been an interesting time for me because I was actually 18 when Barack Obama was elected president. And so that was like a very inspiring time, you know what I mean, to sort of be coming into adulthood and thinking about the future of this country. And I would say when I have sort of between my mid-20s and now, it's kind of been bad news after bad news. And so, you know, I think that when I think about sort of the framework of how I look at the world, um, I've sort of come around to, first of all, trying to keep that nihilism at bay. I think it's very prevalent you know I was talking to my friends I understand how people think today even like my younger cousins they kind of understand um what's coming environmentally I think that's pretty obvious to younger people but I also think that this kind of going with them what Stanley kind of talked to me about a little bit is like once you kind of understand that um, the American story is not sort of inevitably progressive things will not always inevitably get better America is not on some kind of like moral path towards justice automatically, I think it kind of makes you a little bit more cognizant and aware of the stuff you have to do personally um, to keep us on a good path. And so I think that's been, you know, not as easy of a framework of the world that as I have might have had when the first black president was elected when I was 18. But I do think it sort of gives you some motivation to um, keep going. Thanks. Uh, 
Dorothy. Well, in the same sequence, I wonder if you have any feelings or ideas or advice about what people like us in our 80s should do. Uh, and and I'm listening, listening to the Tulsa thing, and I'm thinking about the attack on the judge in D.C. this week. And I'm just wondering, OK, what are we as and those of us who are white, uh, those of us who've been you know, bridge people and activists for racial and social justice all our lives. What should we be doing now? What What should we do? Um, again, big question. I think that, again, this is something I've come around to more recently, but like engaging at the local level is just so important. I feel like the world, the me media and politics have become very nationalized in my in my lifetime, you know? And so, like, you know, we all watched the Trump show for years and all this kind of stuff. But while working on this book, I actually shadowed Regina Gillen, the legislator in the, in the state house in Oklahoma for years. And it really helped me understand the mechanics of how legislation works and how if one party has total power in the state legislature, for example, they don't even have to hear the bills in committee for the other, other party. They just control everything about how things are even considered, let alone voted on. And so that really um made me realize that trying to get more people to engage in the local level and their local communities is really really vital that's where like a lot of the day-to-day -day change happens and I think that for younger people we've been kind of inundated with a very national framework of thinking about politics and change and so I think whatever we can do to make more people aware that the local level is where you can actually make a difference and connect with others um I would say that and then also I think I'm just saying for myself, I feel very disconnected from other people because of the way that like the Internet changed things. And, you know, I don't have a full time job anymore. So I'm kind of out here floating as a freelancer. And so whatever opportunities are to create. Community before, like, for example, I think that the church is a really powerful way to build community because you're gathering around this higher, powerful religion. But also you might be able to activate towards community service or civil rights or these kind of things. So I'm just wondering, like, what are the opportunities that if young people aren't religious, what are the opportunities to build a community around something that's not like activism? Mm -hmm. You know, what is something we can build a community around where we're just being in fellowship? And then when something happens, we're ready to sort of activate. So that's very broad. But I I'm, I know people are hungry for those kind of opportunities to connect with others um, kind of on a more human, intimate level before we get to the big political question, you know. Mm -hmm. In that in that context, just quickly, I'm close to a woman in Montgomery, Alabama, who runs Destiny Driven. Crystal Aridi, do you know her? Oh, I do not actually. I'd love to introduce you if if uh, I don't know can can't give us access to your contact information. Oh yeah, that'd be great. I put it in. The, I put myself in the chat for sure. Awesome, oh, great. Yeah. Uh, Jeff. Yeah, I think uh, I appreciate Dorothy's question, but it seems to to me that what we should do is something that we are going to have to deal with. But I was wondering about uh, people Stanley's age. And it has Stanley, he must, he must have evolved politically and in his thinking through all this work with you. Uh, does he have a, some clear idea of where he is going and where, where he wants to bring other people? Yes, yeah, so, other than Princeton. <laughs> yeah, so 
my first disappointment with Stanley, he was going to, when I was, when he was like 12 or 13, he wanted to be a writer. Like I actually went to his, he was in creative writing classes and I went and spoke to his class when he was like 12. He, he abandoned it. He's not going to be a writer anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's going to be a doctor now, he says. And what's interesting to me is that he's already sort of framed his uh, goals around um, serving low-income communities and sort of trying to figure out ways to help doctors um be more politically engaged that's kind of the framework he has for thinking about being a doctor and so i think um how, how much that's tied up with the research we did together i don't know we didn't talk about that but i do think that he seems to have a very clear vision that um his job and the world around him are not separate you know what i mean i think sometimes that was kind of the mindset especially i think especially that I was kind of taught that like your, 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 your goal. I, I went to like a magnet high school in Montgomery, Alabama and like was a all a student and just like kind of was my track. You know what I mean? And so it's kind of like your, your, your goal is to get a good job. That's what your, that's your job right now as a kid, you know, you make good grades, get a good job, get on that track. And I think people in Stanley generation are sort of seeing a bigger picture for like um, having roles as citizens. I think that role as a citizen is coming into kids' mindsets at an earlier age. Hopefully, it will be a, a positive impact on our whole world for us, all of us, um, when they get a little bit older. Mm -hmm. uh, Doug? Yeah, there's been a, a kind of a little um, off-screen uh, conversation going on about guns. So I, I thought I would tell uh, this group a story that I don't believe I've ever shared with any of you uh, before about this. But uh, before I uh, lived here in Kentucky, I lived in West Georgia, and uh, one of my uh, friends there was a kind of modern-day black cowboy. He lived on a ranch, he owned horses, um, and uh, his uh, grown daughter had uh, lived in, in the household with him, uh, and she had two sons who were pretty young, like five years old and eight years old, something like that. Uh, anyway, uh, there were guns around the house, and one day one of these boys found one of the guns, and he was playing with it, and the gun went off, and he killed his own brother. And I went to the, the funeral. The, the family was very popular in this community. It was a community that was almost exactly 50-50 black and white. Uh, the church was overflowing with people. And it was probably one of the saddest funerals that I've ever been to. You can imagine this young boy was killed by his brother. I mean, it's just almost impossible to imagine. And the reason I, I mention this is because, you know, there are positive aspects about owning guns, but there are also very risky aspects of that. And so if, if you live in a place like Tulsa, where there's also already been one of these horrible massacres and, you know, both whites and blacks own guns and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I mean, how do you even deal with all these kind of possibilities? And mm -hmm. what do people think about all this. It's not safe. <laughs> yeah. Well, Victor, tell us, uh, finally, tell us a little bit about your next projects as we... Um finish up here what are you going to be doing and what's what's up sure. so i'm um as i mentioned at the start of the call i'm actually going on an academic tour uh this coming school year so i'll be speaking at colleges around the country um about the book um 
And even that's been kind of interesting and challenging because, for example, I've talked to a couple of schools in Florida and the professors are kind of like nervous about bringing me to campus, actually. So I've been having some challenges being booked in Florida and Texas specifically uh, because of the policies that those governors and legislators have been setting up. But um, I've been going to about 10 to 12 schools, including University of Alabama, my alma mater, Oklahoma, Georgia Tech, um, University of Georgia, um, College of the Holy Cross, and several others, and um, really trying to get this get um, this knowledge in the hands of more young people. That's like a big goal um, for the next year. And then, um, you know, I have some other book ideas. Nothing's like settled yet, but I do think that um, writing more books about Black history is my goal, and in particular about that window of time between the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement, because I feel like, at least for me growing up, Black people kind of disappeared from the history, from the story between 1865 and 1955 and Rosa Parks um, and the bus boycott began. And so I think that filling in more of those gaps, um, like my friend, for example, remember, didn't know anything about Black Wall Street before I mentioned it to him. And so I want to make sure that we have more of those gaps filled in um, for for everybody. So that, that'll be my goal with the future works for sure. Well, that's good. Great. Terrific. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on. It was really great. Oh, yeah. Thank you all so much. And I uh, put my uh, email and phone number in the chat. So if anybody okay. wants to follow up with me, um, definitely okay. reach out thank to you. me. I any future opportunities. Okay. Thank you. Good luck. Take thank care. You. Fantastic. Bye. Thank you. Thank See you. Now. That was Victor Luckerson. His new book is titled Built from the Fire, the epic story of Tulsa's Greenwood District, America's Black Wall Street. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcasts also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.